Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. My guest today in Hong Kong is Roy Haran. Uh, he is an author, a uh, thinker, an innovator. His company he founded is uh, Innovair. Uh, he's an adjunct professor at uh, Hong Kong Polytechnic. And, uh, and of course, probably most importantly, at least from my perspective growing up, he was a kung fu master in the movies that I used to watch with Jackie Chan and Bruce Lee. <laughs> you know, Roy, that's the real reason I brought you here. Is that I <laughs> Now you're telling my age. <laughs> no, come on. I'm really glad to be here. Well, this is one thing about podcasts you, you can't see, but you know, Roy, Roy really hasn't. He, he's sort of be, he reminds me of Stick in uh, in Daredevil. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, like the, the kind of the blind uh, kung fu master. But uh, so I've got to ask you. I mean, before we get on to creativity and, uh, and 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 psychometric testing, a lot of things you're working with with Fortune 500 companies, you've got to tell me how how did you end up getting into into kung fu movies and, and what were the adventures that sort of brought you here? Well, I've had a kind of an interesting past. I've done a lot of things that uh, are a bit unusual. So I'll just give you a, a few highlights. <laughs> uh, one is at the age of 21, after I graduated early from university, uh, hitchhiked across Canada, uh, did a little bit of work as an archaeologist at the University of Alberta, bought a canoe canoe down the Mackenzie River about 800 kilometers uh, towards the Arctic Ocean to a place called Fort Good Hope, right. which is a First Nations indigenous people. And uh, anyway, they, didn't, they weren't particularly fond of, of white people, but after a while they kind of took us in, and I was with one other guy who left pretty soon afterwards. And uh, I managed to convince one of the trappers to take me out in the, in the bush, you know, trapping and hunting. So basically, I lived a nomadic life in the Arctic for about two years, um, trapping and hunting and sleeping on the snow. Wow! You know, we lived. Uh, we had a tent, but most of the time, the men are out. Uh, we have no shelter whatsoever, and we use dog teams and and so on. The reason I mention this is because eventually, you're going to get onto creativity, and sometimes I find in creativity, it's very important that the more experience you have and the more self-exploration uh, you have, that uh, it enhances your capacity to, to think in innovative ways or in creative ways. So the Arctic was, uh, was quite an experience, many, many stories uh, from the Arctic. I don't know if we have time for that. <laughs> but uh, I became very interested in Asian people, Asian culture. So there I went to Japan. Right. And I started studying martial arts in Japan. This was in the, in the mid-70s, right? Yeah, this was, uh, uh, it was about 70, 74, the end of 73, 74. Uh, so I lived in Kyoto and uh, first started studying uh, karate, Goju karate, and then switched to uh, Shorenji Kenpo, which is Zen Buddhist. Right. It's, a, it's an actual religion in uh, Japan. And uh, so I managed to get a, a black belt in Sharinji Kempo. And was your training full of those sort of typical riddles and mysterious no, it wasn't, exercises they, that you yeah, They didn't use, uh, this is a very different type of uh, Zen Buddha. This was action Zen, I guess you could call it that. And uh, 
I question whether it was Zen Buddhism in the first place because all, all it seemed we were doing is kind of defending and attacking and so forth. But I found over a period of time that there was a radical change in my perspective because of the way that the martial art was approached. In other words, it wasn't approached as an aggressive, as a form of aggression. It was approached as a way of respecting other people and honoring other people. Huh. Uh, even in the midst of violence, something that was very, very violent. In other words, it trained your mind, it trained your heart, your emotions to be able to uh, manage under these type of uh, circumstances. And that's probably one of my first uh, one of my first experiences of flow in martial arts, huh. you know, happened during the study of Shirenji Kempo. And then uh, I went to Taiwan and I studied uh, Northern Shaolin, Tiger style. And then uh, got involved with a guy called Huang Zhengli, who's now 10th degree grandmaster in just about every Korean style. He's the number one martial artist in Korea. And uh, he didn't take students at the time, but I was his student for a number of years. He had a very unique style. And he was a movie actor. He was playing a bad guy, so that's how I got, more or less, one of the ways I got into uh, films as a bad guy. And then picked <laughs> up uh, Wing Chun with the, the guy who taught, actually taught Bruce Lee, hmm. called Wong Shunil. So I've had some really, really great uh, teachers. And I studied martial arts for about 25 years. Well, what, what was it like on set in those days when they were making these, you know, these, these sort of kung fu epics? Uh, well, what was it like on set? It's not like sets nowadays. Uh, you have one camera, and the action choreographers, Chinese action choreographers, try to focus on form. Now, unlike in the West, when you do an action sequence, you want power, you want a feeling, and so yeah. forth. And they fix it in CG. <laughs> yeah, and they fix it in CG, but the Chinese really uh, like to focus on form. So uh, you've got one camera, you have to act to the camera, and and be in control, you have to get the right angles and all that sort of thing, and also act at the same time, look like you're angry or, or, or whatever it is. And the uh, safety measures weren't very high. So <laughs> when I fought Jackie Chan in Snake and Eagle Shadow, um, the first shot, I was, I had a, I ended up with a dislocated left shoulder. So if you look at that action sequence, you see I don't use my left arm, I ended up using a sword through most of it. So I acted for two and a half days with a shoulder that was kind of pulled into joint, pulled out of joint, uh, almost every couple of takes. <laughs> so <laughs> safety measures were, were a bit rough. Yeah, you know, it was it was a lot tougher than it is today, you know, to, uh, to do films in those days. Uh, but enjoyable, a very, very good experience. I guess that experience with martial arts probably led you into meditation and mindfulness which which is a big part of what you now look at uh, not only in your, in, in your yeah. sort of work and research but its connection to creativity productivity innovation well as I mentioned there was one experience I had in Shoreji Campbell when I was going for my black belt uh, they had a procedure where new black belts had to first fight uh, first degree black belts if they lost that was the end of it and if they could beat the first degrees, then they had to go to the second degrees. Then they had to go to the third degrees. Then they had to go to the fourth degree. And then they had to go to the fifth degree. Most people never get past the second degree. Uh, somehow I got into a state of flow. And uh, in this state of flow, 
It was very unusual. It's almost like I knew what the other person was going to do before they even did it. This is like a matrix moment, right? Yeah, it was like a matrix moment and and I wasn't tired. I didn't get tired and it was so easy, so easeful that I went through all the first degrees, the second degrees, the third degrees, the fourth degrees and there were two fifth degrees left before the master who's sixth degree. The first fifth degree, by that time, Japanese don't like this loss of faith, so he was out to kill me pretty much. <laughs> anyway, and you know, I've been fighting for a while, but I managed, I managed him, and then finally the second fifth degree realized that uh, you know, I was cornered in one way and he didn't want to uh, uh, pursue it, so we just kind of played with each other. But it was interesting for me to be in, in that state at very, very high speed, you know, doing things at high speed. Well, what, is it, uh, what does it mean for you? People talk about flow a lot, and I, I feel like it's, it's one of those concepts which has almost been diluted right. through overuse. W- what did you experience then, and, 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 and what is sort of the universal state of flow that people try to get into in so many different activities? Well, uh, there's been some work on that. Um, uh, a psychologist by the name of Csikszentmihalyi was the guy who wrote the book on flow. Yes, yeah. He, he started it and he said that there are certain characteristics in flow like uh, time, uh, uh, time warp, uh, a sense of joy, uh, kind of a, a calmness, uh, spontaneity, and so forth. But actually there's been more work on flow uh, in terms of people involved in extreme sports. Hmm. Uh, in extreme sports, people like, for instance, that, uh, that surf, you know, really, really big surf. I forgot the, the name of this one particular surf. but it, oh, the these, way, these like 50-foot waves, right? Yeah, huge, with a few feet below the surface coral reef. So if you wipe out, that's, that's the end of the story. And there was one guy that uh, was caught up in one of these very, very large waves, and he was being sucked up into the wave. And, of course, it would crash down upon him. And spontaneously, he did something that no one's ever done before, a very creative move. He actually extricated himself from the wave, dropped straight vertical 15 feet onto a lower portion of the wave, caught it, and continued. You know? So how do you do something like that? You know, to, to come up with something that no one's ever done before, you just, you just feel it. Another guy in South America in, in Patagonia was was climbing a rock face that, that no one had ever been able to climb, even with ropes, and he did it uh, free climb. And he had no idea of what the route was or something, and he intuitively took a creative approach to, uh, to climbing, and he, he made the right moves all the way to the top. Do you think this is really just a case of, in these moments of extreme stress and pressure, that the, the, you, the conscious part of your brain, which is interpreting all the time, is just taken off the hook, and it's the pure sensing part of... And that's what happens in creativity. Right. In creativity, there's, there's two aspects of creativity. There's the uh, convergent thinking, which is analysis, evaluation, and then there's the divergent aspect of, of creativity. In the divergent aspect of creativity, that's when the frontal cortex of the brain goes offline. Right. And uh, people who are creative know how to do that automatically to switch back and forth. Well, what's working there? Not the amygdala, surely. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the amygdala is is emotion, and yeah. particularly a fear. Obviously, for people that are in a creative moment, fear is not there. No. You know, 
uh, and these people that are doing extreme sports. They can't. The minute they're in a state of fear, that's it. So it's another it's, part of the brain, which is it's game over. So it's a uh, it's the parietal cortex, the parietal cortex, which is the association cortex of the brain. You make different types of associations. Yeah. It's the uh, the, te- the temporal lobes, which is your memory area, is your memory area, and uh, and it's how all of this information combines together uh, to create. Actually, technically, there's some other things uh, that go on. But to get back to flow, I look at flow uh, as three things that are very very important to flow. One is reward. So you're getting a reward. The re- reward is joy. You know, while you're in the creative process, whether you're a painter or something, you're actually enjoying the creative process. It can be challenging, but there's a there's an inner joy, an inner motivation. Uh, the second thing is awareness. Hmm. Is as you get into flow, your awareness expands, your sense of self expands. So you can almost empathize with whatever the problem is or, or whatever you're whatever you're facing. Uh, so you have a, a, a connection. And the third part is absorption. And that's where meditation comes in, is when you get very, very deeply absorbed in uh, whatever that problem or that particular issue or whatever you're facing. So when those three things are working together and they they integrate, then you're in a state of flow. Hmm. And most of the time, you know, our awareness may be limited to um, the type of programming that we have, you know, our, our habits, and we're not able to expand our sense of self beyond that. Um, our attention, our attention where a lot of times people get very, very easily distracted and they're not able to focus or absorb the mind in something for very, very long. Uh, and then the reward system, uh, the reward system, if the reward system is too narrow, in other words, like addiction, for instance, somebody who, uh, who drinks alcohol and gets addicted to alcohol, what happens in the brain is the reward system narrows down on that particular stimulus and it's reinforced, reinforced again and again and again. You need more, you need more alcohol to, to get the same high and, and so forth. That compromises flow. Hmm. But when you're actually, when you, your reward system expands so that everything becomes a reward, all the five senses operating is you're in a reward state, then it's distributed. Reward is distributed. So in the flow state, that's why people in the flow state can experience so many, many different things uh, through their senses. It's why artists, you know, look at the world and the world looks so beautiful. Uh, it's because their reward system has has altered in the in the brain. So those three things uh, come together, in my opinion. Well, you know, hearing you describe flow, I, I can start to see some of the logic of the Zen Action School you were in in Japan because. They were sort of training your brain to turn that hyper level focus into immediate physical action. Yeah. Um, which uh, I guess is how you sort of weaponize flow, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, flow can. So, but what did they teach? Given that in your entrance exam you had to beat all these guys, did you spend the next 20 years of your life trying to get back to that same state? <laughs> no. No. But it. What did they teach you after that? No, I just. I continued to, to learn. With martial arts, martial arts basically you get to a point where you're not following forms anymore. Hmm. In other words, it becomes very, very spontaneous. You don't go into a situation and say, well, I'm going to do this, 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 this. In other words, whatever happens, the response is automatic. 
you don't even think about it. And usually in a real fight, it's probably less than three seconds. A real fight only lasts about three seconds. Anything that goes beyond three seconds is not. We're just playing with each other. You know, it's you know, <laughs> it's it's in a ring putting on a show, uh, or whatever. Uh, particularly because in real martial arts, you're not using gloves or any any protective gear, and there's there are no rules hmm. in martial arts. So that's why things. <laughs> the, these characteristics that you describe around flow um, that allow humans to achieve incredible performance and, and, and acts of creativity they're also strangely when you describe it sound a lot like these new fields of machine learning where computers are learning to almost expand their consciousness to see a problem and without really understanding the rules find a solution to it whether it's driving a car or recognizing a picture among millions mm-hmm. so when I look at that evolutionary tract what are the things that you think humans uh, are going to be able to, to remain better at in terms of creativity and and what they can do versus the machine evolution? Well, that's a good question. Uh, actually, there are a number of projects worldwide. I think the United States government has one going where they're trying to actually map the brain. Hmm. And the purpose of mapping the brain is to develop neurons, to develop artificial neurons that can actually do a lot of things that human beings this can do. This is the digital brain project, yeah. yeah. So this is, I don't believe that this is going to succeed. The reason I, do, I don't feel that it's going to succeed is because even if these artificial neurons can do many, many different things and you're going to need a, you're going to need uh, enough computers to fill an entire city block. Yeah. Just to, just to map the brain. You don't think it's a, you don't think it's a hardware no, issue. <laughs> no it's, it's it's not a it's not a hardware issue I believe that it's a it's a consciousness issue and but cre- so, so consciousness it, is not a computing no, power problem no it's not a computing uh, power problem uh, computing power can create things will be able to create things by making different types of associations hmm. that it'll be able to do but uh, if you want to call it really really disruptive, transformative type of uh, creativity I don't believe that that's that's possible and the reason I don't think it's possible is it goes back to our definition of self Hmm. in other words normally when we think of self we think of myself within this human body right we don't think of ourselves as an expanded form of self probably our expanded form of self would be our close friends our family we have a, a bit of a connection with them, but actually the sense of self goes far beyond that. It goes you know, into the community, it goes to the, the planet and so forth. It's extremely complex. All the connectivity that we have as a human being with everything, everything around us on this, this planet. And the same thing applies to not only us as, uni- as individuals, but also corporations. Corporations aren't aware uh, or that keenly aware of just how connected they are. They look at you know, how they're connected to the marketplace and how they play in the marketplace, but they don't see all these other factors. So a, a computer that is designed against one human brain in terms of processing power, yes, it can do a lot of things, but it doesn't have that awareness. How do you define awareness though? Because uh, a computer connected to the internet, connected to millions of sensors, has 
in some ways an, an awareness of a broader world, maybe not at the moment fully understanding the, the significance of those things. <laughs> okay. Now we're going to get abstract. <laughs> well, I just... Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let me... This is my viewpoint. Yeah. Uh, imagine that this universe is a block of marble, right? Within that block of marble, there are many, many different types of sculpt, uh, sculptures that could be made. Almost an infinite number of sculptures. It's, a, it's an unrealized piece of potential. Yeah. yeah. It's an unrealized piece of potential. But that potential is there. You know, so if the universe has all of this this potential, then why does it need to create? It doesn't need to create anything at all. So creativity is is not part of that. Where does creativity come in? So let's imagine that within that block of marble, one of these potentials is a large mirror. So you have a large mirror that that is a potential within there, and things, other potentials are reflected in that mirror. And then somehow this, a block of marble, the, in terms of deciding what the potential is, normally it's us, you know, human beings, we look at a block of marble. But assume that this block of marble is conscious, is aware of all of its potential, right? So one part, one potential is the mirror that is aware of other, other things reflected in the mirror. And let's say that mirror suddenly defines itself by what's reflected in it and it says oh this is this is who i am i'm what's reflected in me so then what the mirror does is the mirror can start in a way making choices making associations but the minute the mirror has the thought if you want to call it that things are reflected in me then you set up a boundary condition hmm. you set up a boundary condition within that uh, within that block of of marble. Once you set up a boundary, one boundary condition, then you have an infinite number of boundary conditions and, and boundaries constantly being, uh, being developed all the time because you have infinite potential. So when you have all of these different uh, uh, boundary conditions, then you have creativity because creativity is a part of creativity is getting outside of boundaries, right? So human beings, we feel limited. We feel limited, we feel separated. We feel that we're the doers of everything. So all of these things create boundaries in us. So that's, that's one part, but we wanna get outside of those boundaries. So how do we get outside of those boundaries? Well, what does a human being want? Because you're talking about the future, there's one thing that human beings want. Every human being wants this, and will want this way far into the future. I'm terrified to speculate what it is. <laughs> no, I actually, I actually heard it in a Queen concert. And in the song, in the lyrics, it said, I want everything, I want it all, and I want it now. <laughs> right? So what does, I mean, what does it mean, I want it all, and I want it now? Take it to the extreme. I want it all. I want to be omniscient. I want to know everything. I want to be omnipotent. I want to be all-powerful. It's the tree of knowledge. Right? right? I want to be omnipresent. I want to be everywhere. You know, within uh, extreme power is the capacity to be extremely happy anytime I want, as long as I want. So human beings, we have this and we're striving towards that. So on one side, we're striving for, 
uh, towards that, we want another side we're deathly afraid of it. Mm. Because boundaries are comfortable. And sometimes when we face when we face things that are have less boundaries, a lot of people get scared. But in fact, all human beings don't have boundaries at the deeper level. But we try to hold on to those on one side we try to hold on to those boundaries. On the other side, we want to we want to get outside of them. So corporations Corporations uh, want to have that structure. They want to have that structure. They want to have that control. But at the same, well, they time, want to have an innovation department. Yeah, they want to have an innovation. <laughs> they want to have an innovation department, right? So, basically, if you look at corporations, look at Google, for instance. Google is omniscience, knowledge. Google search. You can go and get any type of knowledge that you need. Uh, if you look at omnipotence, you look at the computer the laptop computer, the mobile device, all these applications that give us power to do, to, to draw, to do art, to science, you know, legal things, whatever it is, you know, that is also in that direction in terms of people's uh, deeper needs. Uh, in terms of uh, omnipresence being everywhere, Facebook. Yeah. You know, you've got friends, you're connected to, to people all, all over the, the planet. So what these companies are doing is they're looking at uh, people's deeper needs, people, people's deeper needs, and by supplying those deep, deep, deeper needs, they're making a lot of money. Yeah. They're doing really well. But there's a problem with that. There's a problem because with every thing that you do, there's an upside, but there's also a downside to it. So in order to understand the downside and address in terms of innovation the downside, you have to look at the corporation not as a single entity. The corporation has to look at itself in a much greater perspective. In other words, the sense of self of a corporation. Has to be an ecosystem, right? Has to be a, an, an entire ecosystem. Uh, just, just sort of making concrete what you were saying before, in some ways people's current obsession with Instagram and, and is, is in a way people playing now with an expanded sense of self. Yeah. Maybe not in an entirely uh, altruistic or positive way, but it's that sense of pushing beyond the boundaries of just me in a space, in a village, in a community. Yeah, so there's... Being there, internet famous is in a weird way a, a form of transcendence. Yeah, in a way that's what we're looking for because when we get beyond our boundaries, there's joy. Yeah. There's joy in that. On the other side, on the, the, the fear side, there was a study done in the United States and they discovered that uh, a lot of people talk about creativity and innovation, but when push comes to shove, they're afraid of it because creativity involves extra effort. You know, yeah. It involves getting outside of your, your comfort zone. Uh, it's, and it's instability. It, and, it's, it's, and, it's, and it's instability. It's the trickster and the coyote causing right, trouble, yeah, right? <laughs> right. So corporations, corporations have, to, uh, have to face that. And at the same time, those that are afraid of creativity, they can't really see it when it's in front of their own nose. But how do you, if, you, if you're a leader of a company and you're in an industry that, that's been very traditional but is now under challenge from new entrants and technologies and changing behavior and you want to instill that sense of fearless creativity in your people, how do you do it? Where do you start? Well, the first thing is you have to understand the reward system. Now, people work for a company, they work for a company, they have a lot of different reasons for working for a company. Uh, money is one of them, but it's not one of the highest. 
Uh, another is a sense of appreciation. Another is a sense of camaraderie you know, within the company, the culture of the company. There are a lot of different reasons why people work for a company. Uh, but a lot of reasons for working for an external party are external reasons. In other words, higher money, other people, you know, say I'm a good guy and so forth. In creativity and innovation, it's a complete different type of motivation. You start giving people more money for their creative ideas, their creative ideas are actually going to go downhill. They're not going to get better. They're going to get worse because creativity is internally motivated. You know, it comes from within. It's a, it's a joyful, it's called an, It's its own reward. Yeah, it's its own reward. It's called an autotelic process where basically we feel joy in doing this and we want to do more of it and more of it. So people will take rewards if it gives them an opportunity to be more creative. So one is the reward system has to change in terms of, of creativity. So how do you foster you know, this sort of uh, internal motivation? Do you give them more time to work on those things? Uh, that's one approach, is give people more time. Another thing is to encourage them. Encourage them. A lot of people don't think that they're very creative, but actually creativity, many people think that it takes a long time to teach people how to be creative. I just came out of a training that was three and a half hours with uh, people from the hospitality industry that are going for PhDs. And basically I, I taught them how to become creative in three and a half hours. And most of them at the beginning, they set themselves and their performance was pretty much zero creativity. By the end of three and a half hours, they were developing, they had already developed multi-million dollar ideas they could go out and go to market in three and a half hours. And the way to do that is they have to understand what already exists within themselves, but they've just never had a chance to look at it. In terms of, in terms of capabilities or ideas? Capabilities, how their mind functions, <clears throat> how their brain functions. Uh, not just the ideas, but the, the fundamentals, the fundamentals of how they function as a human being and how they can utilize uh, this functioning in a slightly different way and suddenly they become very, very creative. So, but this is, I call this creative doing, which gets around to another aspect of, of creativity and kind of tie this together. There are two forms of creativity in my opinion. One is creative doing and the other is creative being. So creative doing is what most people consider creativity, that you create some sort of valued product uh, or an idea uh, that is new, right? That's a, a common common definition, or or an expression that's new. So in other words, it's something that's tangible, and so companies are looking for that because that's that's the bottom line. That's where you uh, can en enhance the bottom line. That's where design comes in, design thinking, and all these different sorts of things. That's important. That's important. But companies, if they get stuck at that level, you know, they're not going to go into the future. And the reason they're not going to go into the future because when you create things, when you create things, if you don't take into account the much bigger picture, then you could be doing damage, do damage to the environment, do damage to people psychologically, it's over. So now the attitude is, I put it out there, however people deal with it, you know, if it ends up destroying the human race, well, I didn't plan that, 
in the beginning, how could I possibly foresee that this is what happened? This yeah. is the creative being side. Yeah. No, this is the creative doing side. Right. So in other words, coming up with tangible uh, products that compete with each other in the marketplace. Because some of these tangible products, you know, in the hands of people that are less mature can be very, can be quite dangerous, right? So the, the atomic uh, nuclear energy is one example. Uh, possibly cloning of human beings or genetic modifications to create superhumans and that. Yeah. There are downsides to this. Uh, so that's where creative being comes into place. Creative being is the capacity in a very spontaneous way to be creative all the time. And to be creative all the time like that, once again, your sense of self has to expand. Your awareness has to expand. Your capacity to become more absorbed in what you're doing has to expand. You have to get more into flow, into the flow state. Your reward system has to modify. Because once you have that, you're no longer you're no longer Mike, you know, Mike is everything that Mike touches or comes in contact with. And you operate from that space in a creative way. So in the future, when people become, and everybody can do this, I can teach people how to do that. And so what happens is when people are into that space, one, their creative ideas are even better. Uh, they can come up with disruptive ideas, very disruptive ideas quite quickly, but at the same time, I guess you'd say that there's a responsibility because you wouldn't create something, you know, that, that would hurt yourself. The minute the idea came out, you would be destroyed. Nobody wants to do that. Right. But if you create something, you're not destroyed, but somebody else is destroyed. Oh, well, all right, that's somebody else. That's not me. I survived this. But if that other person is you, then you, you want to think twice. You're going to think twice before you do that. So that's kind of corporate social responsibility taken to another level in terms of uh, in terms of creativity. Well, it's been a it's been a great pleasure and honor having you on the show, sharing your ideas. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this is a fun yeah, fun exercise. <laughs> You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.